17. John 17. First five verses. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning it is your glories that we sing. This morning we come and we recognize your worth and our unworthiness. We know that we are sinners. We know that we are undeserving. And yet as we look to the word of God, we see the, your glory. We see your amazing love for us. That despite our sin, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Heavenly Father, this morning as we look at these five verses, as we meditate on our salvation in Christ, as we look to eternity past and the plans that you have made and as they have unfolded over time, may we glory in who you are and what you have done. May you and you alone get the glory in this hour. Open our eyes to see the glory that has unfolded for us in this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. This week as I was studying these five verses, and even this morning, as we come to this passage, my mind was continually drawn back to a scene in Exodus chapter 3. It's probably a passage that you're familiar with as Moses comes across the burning bush. As he stands there and he approaches that bush and God proclaims from that bush, come no further and take off your sandals for you stand on holy ground. I recognize that in Christ, every time we come to God in prayer, we are on holy ground. Every time we come to the Word of God, we are on holy ground. And yet, it seems particularly that way this morning. As we come to these five verses, we are on holy ground. This morning, we come to John 17. It's the high priestly prayer of Christ. It's the longest prayer recorded in Scripture of Christ's. It can be broken down into three parts. What we'll see this morning, these first five verses, as Christ prays for the glory that is His. Lord willing, next week we'll see the next section as Christ prays for His disciples, and then finally as He prays for His church. One of the resources I spent some time in this week is um, Through the Bible with J. Vernon McGee. And as I introduce this, I, I, I want to read his introduction because I, I don't think that I could introduce this passage better than he does here. 
He says this, the upper room discourse is like climbing a staircase or like climbing a mountain, climaxing in this prayer. I'd like to quote to you what others have said about this great chapter. Matthew Henry. It is the most remarkable prayer following the most full and consoling discourse ever uttered on the earth. Martin Luther. This is truly beyond measure a warm and hearty prayer. He opens the depths of his heart both in reference to us and to his Father, and he pours them all out. It sounds so honest, so simple. It is so deep, so rich, so wide. No one can fathom it. Philip Melanchthon, another of the reformers, there is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or on earth, more exalted, more holy, more faithful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. This is the prayer which John Knox read over and over in his lifetime. When he was on his deathbed, his wife asked him, where do you want me to read? He replied, read where I first put my anchor down in the 17th chapter of John. We have the record of many others who have read it over and over. Dr. Fisher, who was Bishop of Rochester under Henry VIII, had this read as the last portion of Scripture just before his martyrdom. This is a great portion of Scripture. I feel wholly and totally inadequate to deal with this prayer. It is his high priestly intercession for us. It is a revelation to us of the communication which I think constantly passes between the Lord Jesus and the Father in heaven. His entire life was a life of prayer. He began his ministry by going into a solitary place to pray. Often he went up into a mountain to pray and spent the night in prayer. He is our great intercessor. He prays for you and for me. If you forgot to pray this morning, he didn't. He prayed for you this morning. I add my voice to Mr. McGee. I feel entirely unworthy as we come to this passage. I was telling Jim before the service as, as we were talking about the passage we were going to be in this morning, and I said, I, I feel like I could spend all year studying these five verses and still not come close to fully unpacking it. By the Spirit, but with the Spirit of God, the Word of God is powerful. God can accomplish his purposes this morning. As we come to this passage, we are gazing into eternity past, and we are watching the plan of salvation unfold. It's almost as if in these five verses we are stepping into a private conversation between God the Son and God the Father. And as you work your way through this, we'll see the promise, the fulfillment, and the glory. First thing we see in verse 1 is the promise. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. Notice first, 
the connection with the farewell discourse. Jesus spoke these words and lifted up his eyes to heaven. He, he ended his farewell discourse, his last instruction to his disciples. And then he lifts up his, hat, his eyes to heaven. A posture of prayer. In fact, as you come to the high priestly prayer of John 17, you cannot divorce the farewell discourse from the high priestly prayer. The high priestly prayer is basically a summation of the major themes of the farewell discourse. In fact, Matthew Henry puts it this way. He says, after he spoke from God to them, he turns to speak to God for them. He has taught them. And now he prays for them and for us. He spoke these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. The first time Jesus says this is back in chapter 12, verse 23. You might remember it, that passage we talked about all throughout the book of John. The hour is not yet here. It is not yet come. And then you get to chapter 12. And in John 12, 23, Jesus acknowledges for the first time as Gentiles come and they seek an audience with him, he acknowledges for the first time that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. There's a clear change, a clear shift at that point. Which leads right into this farewell discourse just a few verses later in chapter 13. We come here to John 17. The hour is still at hand. And yet this time, notice the change in how Jesus states it. In verse 12, chapter 12, verse 23, says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It is a sure thing. It is going to happen. And yet here, notice that it's more of a request. The hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may also glorify you. Do what you have promised. I find that interesting. Jesus, more than anyone who has ever lived, believes and he understands the sovereignty of God. And yet he also believes and he understands the importance of prayer, and the two are not at odds. He knows that God will glorify him, and yet he prays that God will glorify him. Glorify your son. It's a claim to deity. Isaiah 42.8 and 48.1 very clearly state that God does not give his glory to another. This is, do not mistake it, a claim of deity. As Philippians 2 puts it, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It was His right. This glory is His. Glorify your Son. To clothe Him in splendor. 
It's a theme all throughout the book of John in chapter 8, chapter 12, chapter 13, here in chapter 17, twice. God is glorifying Jesus all throughout his ministry and it culminates in the cross and the resurrection. Glorify your son. Do what you have promised. In fact, as you come here to this first verse, there's, there's an expectation of glory from the son. We'll see that in verses 4 to 5. It is a promise in eternity past, a promise of redemption and restoration. A promise that the Father will not abandon the Son. A thought promise that He will send the Son to die, that He will rise again victorious, that He will be raised to heaven, that He will be seated at the right hand of God, that the glory that is His will be restored. Glorify your Son. Do what you have promised. Finish the task. And yet notice that Jesus' goal in seeking glory is not selfish, but it's to glorify the Father. Glorify your Son. Do what you have promised so that I can glorify you. Restore to me what is rightfully mine so that I can give you what is rightfully yours. That your son may glorify you. How does this happen? Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. How does this happen? How does the father glorify the son so that the son can glorify the father? There's this promise in eternity past that this will happen. How does it happen? That's what we see in verses 2 to 3. As or just as. Verse 2 is the grounds for what we see in verse 1. This is how this happened. As you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. First, this happens as the Father gives the Son authority. As you have given Him, the Son, me, Jesus Christ, authority over all flesh. We see that in John 5, 27, Jesus has authority to save and to judge. the same authority that Christ sends forth his church in Matthew 28 go therefore because all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me it is the authority to save it is the authority to judge you have given him authority oh, again in eternity past this plan that is unfolding this plan of redemption this plan of salvation. What is this authority given for? That He, the Son, should give eternal life to as many as you have given Him. 
The Father gives the Son authority and the Son will give eternal life. Notice that word give. It is a gift. It is not a right. In fact, what is it that we deserve? What is our right? It is death and it is hell, is it not? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin, what is rightfully mine, what I deserve, the wages of sin is death. It is separation from God. It is hell. That is what I deserve. I do not deserve eternal life. And yet God in Christ gives eternal life. To who? To as many as you have given him. The recipients are those that the Father has foreknown and elected. It is the Father who gives authority and it is the Father who elects. And all the elect that the Father will give will be saved. Whosoever believes is whosoever is elect. There's a famous a quote that I've heard before. I tried to track down who said it this week and I couldn't find it. It goes something along the lines of, the more I share the gospel, the more elect people I meet. Whosoever will, whosoever believes is whosoever is elect. Note the word give in this passage. The Father gave Jesus authority. The Son gives eternal life, and the Father gives the Son the redeemed. Just think about that for a second. Salvation is your gift in Christ, and you are God's gift to Christ. What is this eternal life? So we see in verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is simply to know God. It's not a simple head knowledge. It's not just an awareness of who God is. It is a relationship. It is a personal relationship with the true God. To know him is to have eternal life. But how? How can I, a sinner so unworthy, how can I possibly know the God of the universe, the only true God? Through Jesus Christ, whom He has sent. In John 14, verses 6 to 11, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Salvation is not about what you know or what you do. It's about who you know. And you can know God through Christ today. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What we see here in these first three verses is nothing short of remarkable. Absolutely. 
It is the glory of salvation. It is the mystery being unfolded before us. From eternity past, of a God who chose, a God who saves, a God who sends. We promise the fulfillment and in verses 4 to 5, the glory. I have glorified you on the earth. All throughout his ministry, through his miracles and through his testimony, Jesus glorified the Father on earth. And yet there's also a, a completed, forward-looking aspect to what Jesus is saying here. I have finished the work that you have given me. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given to me. And in fact, in just a few hours, Jesus will triumphantly proclaim from the cross, it is finished. What we see here in these four verses is the reality that Jesus did not go to the cross reluctantly. He did not go to the cross in shame. He did not go to the cross overcome with dread. He went to the cross victoriously. This high priestly prayer is not a gloomy prayer. It is a prayer of victory. The very thing that the world would look at and would, would, would see as shameful, Jesus sees as what brings him glory. It is through this work that you have given me. It is through the cross. It is through the resurrection that I will be glorified so that I can glorify you. Is there a part of his human nature that struggled with it? I'm sure there is. But Jesus goes to the cross victoriously. He knows what God will do. He knows what awaits him. I have glorified you. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself. I mentioned back in verse 1 that glorify your son. The idea of glorify is to clothe with splendor. And yet as we come to verse 5, we see that this splendor, that this glory is not new to Christ. We know already from John 1, 1 to 18, of the glory that Christ had before the incarnation and eternity passed. And Jesus is not here asking for a new or enhanced glory. He's asking for the glory that is His. It is the glory that He set aside in the incarnation as we see in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. That glory that He set aside now is being restored. 
D.A. Carson puts it this way, to restore the splendor that Jesus had before he took on flesh. In these five verses, that, that is what we are seeing. The plan of salvation unfolded from eternity past between the Father and Son to save you and to save me. Those who are sinners. Those who are entirely unworthy. And yet he loves you enough. He loves me enough do this and he deserves all the glory in conclusion rather than putting it in my own words I just want to read Ephesians 1 as Paul masterfully unfolds the very things that we see here verses 3 to 14 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the Beloved, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the time he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory to the praise of his glory. So what now? How do we respond to a passage like this? As Jesus moves from his farewell discourse into his high priestly prayer, as he heads towards the cross, as he goes triumphantly for you and for me, how do we respond to the depth of the truth of the glory of God as revealed in these five verses? First, I think we bow and worship. Recognize the cost of your salvation the wisdom of God, the love of the Father, the sacrifice of the Son. Look what God has done for you and bow 
in wonder before him. Marvel at the grace of God from eternity past to save you. Lift his name. And we will have just, and in just a second, we'll have an opportunity as we close with the song, I will glory in my Redeemer. I would challenge you this morning. Pay attention to the truth that you are proclaiming as you sing that song. I will glory in my Redeemer. Don't sing it mindlessly. Don't go through the motions. Pause and pray those truths back. Let that flow from your heart. I will glory in my Redeemer. Lift His name. Secondly, believe in Jesus. If you are here this morning and you have never placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation, turn from your sin and turn to Christ. See the glory of salvation as unfolded in these five verses. That you are a sinner. That you stand before a holy God who is worthy And that your sin separates you from that God. It sets you at odds with Him. And the penalty for your sin is death. And yet even in that state, God so loved you that He sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And you can believe even this morning. Look what God has done for you. And turn to him in faith. See the greatness of God. Recognize your sin. Confess your sin. And believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Again, even as we close with the song, I will glory in my Redeemer if he is not your Redeemer. If you have not placed your faith in Christ for salvation, even during that song, won't you come forward? And I would love nothing more than to take a Bible and to point you to Christ to answer your questions. Those of us who are in Christ, worship, believe, and then go forth and proclaim. Don't keep the glory of salvation to yourself. Proclaim the good news. Don't just come here and worship in song and in giving. Go and worship with your life. But the fragrance of the gospel, of the good news, Go forth from your life. That those around you may see that there is something glorious. There is something different. And you can point them to Christ and the glories of salvation.